Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. We're leaving on the 31st of October, no ifs or buts. The time when people trust politicians, that's over. Can you give us a question? Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir. There is an awakening going on. Activism works. I will do whatever it takes to stop Brexit. Hello, welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. We're back after the summer break and we've got a new intro, Alan, because it's been a crazy, crazy, crazy summer of politics. Yeah, it's not the same politics now as it was when we broke for the summer holidays in the first place. No, Everything's we have... even more up in the air than it was before. I know, we have two new party leaders, Joe Swinson, Boris Johnson, who appear in our intro. And, I mean, I just don't know where to start. <laughs> You'll count yourself like you haven't got to teach this thing over this term. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Who yeah, knows? We've got what's... crisis in Conservative Party, Parliament prorogued. We've got more Brexit crisis on the way, and we've got an upsurge of action on the streets about climate change. Exactly. So we thought we'd talk about climate change because it's bigger than Brexit. It's much more important, and actually, it's a really, really big week at the moment. We've had climate strikers. Um, on the streets last Friday, the United Nations is meeting as uh, today. So um, let's get into it. Our guests today, um, we're really pleased to have them here, Professor Corinne Lacroix and Pierre Boucon, um, who are going to talk to us about climate change, their work and, and what it all means. So welcome, both of you. Hi. So let's start with talking about those climate strikers. Um, I went to meet some of them last Friday um, in Norwich City Centre, where we're based. Um, and they've been out making their voice heard. And I wanted to ask them why they were there and what they were hoping to achieve. My name's Francesca. I'm here because I believe that we have a right to our future and I actually believe that we should have a future that we want to live in, not a planet that is completely destroyed where we can't do anything that we want to do. Yes, school is important and education is important and I completely believe that. I actually really love school for one, but there's no point in going to school if we don't have a future where we can use all of the skills that we learn. My name's Jamie Osborne. I'm a city councillor for the Green Party for Mancroft Ward in the centre of Norwich. What we need is zero carbon transport. We need electric buses on a big scale. We need also to plant trees on a big scale. Is it realistic though, Jamie? Well, we've got to make it realistic. People across the world, often the poorest people are facing the effects of climate change already are facing the threat of famine and, and displacement because they can't continue to live where they are. We need to stop talking about what's possible and start talking about what's necessary. I'm Megan. I want to be in school, but I can't. I want to be applying for uni. I want to be doing all the things that I want to as a teenager, but I can't because we're in a crisis. Great to hear from those climate strikers. It seems to me like they've really managed to shift the debate over the last year or so. Is, is that fair? Is that the way you see it, Corinne? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been huge change in the past year in the way climate change has raised on the agenda. Uh, there's a lot uh, more uh, action. There's the youth strikes. There is the extension rebellion, but also uh, the uh, European elections where there's been a really big wave of green-leaning politicians that have put uh, climate change on the agenda. So things have really evolved massively in the last year. Do you think the, the public opinion is shifting with it, Pierre? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think it was quite amazing uh, when we were discussing Brexit last spring that at some point extension rebellion put the agenda for a brief period at the very top, put a climate on the very top of the agenda. And I think that's surprising and that's a, that's a good sign. I think now it's becoming 
a bigger issue, one that is a concern for a broader range of voters, not just young people and citizens more generally. So uh, it's not going to go away. And we're seeing that more broadly, aren't we? And lots of people are talking to me and saying that they're making changes in their lives. You know, they're giving up plastic or they're cutting down on their meat. Uh, um, do we think this is going to have a, a lasting change, these, this, these kinds of voices? Yeah, I mean, the next uh, 15 months is going to be v massively important. So there's a big uh, international effort now with the, with the Paris Agreement that has been signed by countries. There's a key date coming up at the end of next year, 2020, where countries are supposed to come back with enhanced pledges to tackle climate change. So the next 15 months, at least, is going to be a huge topic as the countries think about what does it mean for me, uh, how to translate this big ambition of climate emergency into action on the ground. So I think it is indeed, in fact, a trend that is put, putting the topic very much at the forefront. Yeah, politicians often act because they, their publics are making demands because that's going to affect their, their prospects at the ballot box. And I think, as, as Pierre and Corinne say, say, part of what's noticeable is there's, there's an electoral pressure now. You, you see politicians, Labour's going to talk a lot about Green New Deal in its conference. Conservative and other parties are also trying to show their green credentials. They know there's a generation and above that is now turned on to this issue, is paying very close attention nationally and internationally. And when you see kids on the streets, and you know these kids are going to be, if they're not voters now, they'll be voters in two years, they're going to be politicised possibly for their life over this kind of issue. So I think it's going to have very long-lasting effects. And we have talked in the past about young people not really engaging with politics and engaging with actually going out and voting. And I wonder if this is one of those things that's going to actually kickstart that. No, I think, I think it absolutely will. I think it's a, because having these kinds of political experiences when you're young is quite important. It attunes mm -hmm. people to politics. It, it gets them involved, thinking about all kinds of issues. These, these people are going to remember that they were involved in this, but they're also going to remember if things aren't done in response to the demands that they're making. And you have climate activists being trained right now on the ground, and I'm always amazed at how articulate some of the school strikers are, and I'm sure they, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will remain active in various ways, in political parties, in orga other organisations. So I asked these climate strikers what inspired them to be there, um, and I thought they were going to say Greta Thunberg, but they didn't actually. Most of them said they were because they were seeing the effects of climate change for themselves. And I had my own revelation this year. I went to Malaysia on holiday, and I'd been to Malaysia, the same place, the same exact island off the east coast called Radang, 20 years ago. And when I went the first time, it was... It was like an underwater paradise. It was like the scene out of Finding Nemo, you know, with the fish, the little clownfish. It was wonderful, colourful, bright. But this time when I went back, there was um, a lot of dead coral. There was a lot fewer fish. There were a lot more tourists. So when I got back, I was, I was quite affected by this. So I made contact with Dr. James Tan. He's a marine biologist from University of Malaysia, Terengganu. And I asked him why, what was it that had changed? The number of tourists have increased tremendously or the capacity of the resort, the numbers of rooms increased a lot as well. The, that numbers of uh, uh, tourists is impacting our marine environment. So we know that with this uh, increase of the seawater temperature, one of the impact that we are seeing already will be the bleaching. It doesn't kill the coral uh, immediately, okay, but it actually weakens their resilience. Maybe without the climate change, they are able to recover faster. But now we are seeing local threats plus um, global threats. So with these two combinations, you know, it's actually quite deadly for the reef. 
So he talked about the local threats of tourism, the global threats of global warming. Do you think we need to see it for ourselves to wake up and actually really do something? Whether we need to, I'm not sure. But in fact, we do see it for ourselves now, definitely. I mean, most people who are 30 years or older <clears throat> remember how the climate was around them when they were young and that it's changing. And even if you're younger than this, when you see an impact on climate change, of climate change, be it uh, heat waves or extreme rainfall or storm surges in coastal area, it's a lot scarier when you see it in reality than when you're told about it by scientists. So I think it does come and meet something very uh, fundamental inside us that when we're in it, then the urgency seems a lot more real. Pierre? Yeah, it seems to me that there is this convergence between movements that frame the issue as a crisis and, and put it on the agenda, and on the other end, like the, the climate changing, and we can, we can grasp it. At the same time, f sometimes it feels it's a bit, it's not new, but we start having this very concrete realization in the global north, but in many places in the global south, they have been on the front line for a long time, so the crisis is hardly new, just we were not talking about it as much. It's interesting <coughs> though, isn't it? Because we've had all this progress made by activists, Extinction Rebellion, um, the climate strikers. There seems to still be quite a big gap between protest and action. Um, you know, I, I watched a report on Channel 4 News about, about how Germany was still digging coal out of the ground. Why do you think it's so difficult for governments to change? Um, can I start with you, Pierre? You've looked at, at Europe quite a lot, haven't you? Yeah, my, my, my specialization is uh, EU energy and climate politics and policy. So uh, Germany is, is an interesting case because it's really Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On the one hand, Germany is in many ways uh, uh, a model for countries in terms of developing, for instance, renewable energy. It was an early starter with a pioneering law. At the same time, J Germany is has a lot of car companies that produce large SUVs and has been always very reluctant to address emissions from cars because they sell and export them. Uh, at the same time, Germany is also very reliant on coal. And as you say, uh, Germany has committed to phase out coal, but not until at the moment, not until uh, 2038. So that's quite far, far away. Uh, and, and that's, of course, just Germany. There are other countries that rely very heavily on coal all across the world. Mm. Uh, so yeah, Germany has, has this very, very ambiguous attitude. At the same time, it's a quite a crucial country in Europe because it can easily shift uh, uh, the mood, and easily, not that easily, but it, it, has, it, it has a pivotal role at the EU level to uh, direct the position of the EU. And, and when I saw those interviews with the companies from Germany, they were saying, well, we can't just stop digging up this coal immediately because there's all these jobs that rely on it. And I suppose that's, is that the difficulty, that it's economic versus climate? Yeah, totally. I mean, the emissions, the emissions we put in the atmosphere come from pretty much everything we do in our day-to-day -day lives. So we have to be very systematic. We have to have long-term approaches about moving out of fossil emissions. And there are things that are easier than others. For example, moving out of coal for Western countries, for rich countries, is an action that is relatively, nothing is actually easy, but it's more easier than other things because you can target the industry, you can put incentive, you can subsidize the industry to do something else, and then you can organize your job market to uh, move to something else. And so a lot of uh, uh, Western countries are moving away from coal. This is what has been a, a done big emissions drop in the UK, for example. But when you, once you've done that, once you've deployed your renewable energy and you have renewable electricity, then you have to tackle things that 
affect our day-to-day lives, like transport, car transport, biggest source of emissions in many, many countries, including the UK. Then uh, you have the heating. So uh, the way you heat your house is also affecting many of us, the industry, then the food we eat. And this starts to really go very, very personal. So you have to put into place policies that affect your choices, your everyday life. And some people will benefit. Others will have to act more than you hit issues of justice in the actions and who pays and who uh, needs to relocate and so on, relocate in their job. Um, so the the move to address climate change is one that touches us fundamentally, but is also one that moves towards full sustainability of the planet, which is a place where we need to be. And I wonder if that's going to be politically unpopular, Alan. Well, some of it is a challenge from that point of view. People people being asked to change their lifestyles, have fewer holidays, eat different kinds of things is, is certainly a big challenge for politicians who might be used to telling people things that people want to hear, although I think there is a groundswell of opinion and support for that. There is actually a, a demand and an interest in it. But I think it's also something, something more complicated, which is that we're not really used to, certainly in this part of the West, governments undertaking policy actions of this kind of scale and complexity. In the mid-20th century, we were. Governments were creating nationwide transport systems, national education services, expanding universities, building things, creating national health services and so forth. The last 30, 40 years or so, we've had a kind of scepticism about government. We've withdrawn government activity from all sorts of areas and said, oh, it can't do it, doesn't know how to do that kind of thing. Let's leave it to individuals. Let's leave it to businesses and markets and so forth. So there is, I think, a lack of experience on the part of some politicians and government officials and a lack of confidence and there is this weird lack of confidence I shouldn't say weird perhaps of people in governments that's part of the paradox of this issue is that on the one hand it's very critical of government's inability to act but actually we need to be more positive about the capacities of governments to coordinate collective activity if they're actually to deliver something of this kind of scale. Yeah absolutely because individuals yes can contribute and have a role to play but at the end of the day, governments need to really set the line. They need to set the framework. We need a price on carbon, be it a tax or a regulation or a norm, uh, so that industry moves in the, the right direction. So there's only limited things that individuals can do, although what they can do is very powerful. But the force needs to come from governments. And that requires aligning this that sort of green transformation with a broader general vision of what life is going to be like when governments have instituted those radical changes, built health services, education yeah. systems and so forth. They've done it on the basis of there being some sense amongst the population, okay, how we're living now is not good. Yeah. And we can in fact we can see we can envision a different way of living in 10, 15 years time and being committed to that longer term goal. At the moment, politics isn't really in that kind of space. It moves day by day, issue by issue really rapidly. And we're not quite clear on where things are going. But I think that's part of what's behind this issue as well as people's sense of well, we don't know actually how we're going to be living in 10, 15 years. It's not a case of saying uh, we won't do anything because we like how we're living and we can see it going into the future. We can't. We can see that things have to change. So whichever political movement can provide some sense of here's how we might live in 10, 15, 20 years, here's how we can get there, can begin to marshal and organise the collective activity needed. And, and the EU is quite a powerful force for change, um, presumably in this area. Yeah, the uh, EU climate policy has been a flagship policy of the EU for a long time. And uh, the frameworks adopted at the, at the EU level have often, uh, they are uh, kind of study on that, have 
pushed many governments to go further than they may have gone otherwise. Uh, so, but at this, ultimately, implementation still relies very heavily on member states. So for member states, first member states will be involved in agreeing, for instance, the target that the EU uh, adopts on climate change and then have to implement. So you need the, the state level remain, remain crucial within, even within the EU. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I want to talk a bit about language because the language we use around this topic's also changed. Um, the newspaper, um, The Guardian, uh, for example, decided not to call it climate change anymore, but to call it climate emergency or climate crisis. Um, and let's play a bit of Professor Sir David King. He used to be one of the government's chief scientific advisors, and he spoke to the BBC last week, and he described it as a scary scenario. We're seeing extreme weather events just rolling out year after year with massive loss of life. Rising sea levels, rising temperatures, changes in weather patterns impacting on farmers and everybody. Is this a scary scenario? Of course it is. And how should we react as human beings to this scenario? We have to all pull together and understand the challenges and act to stop it. Is it helpful to use the terms scary and emergency and crisis? You talk about rhetoric all the time, Alan. What's yeah. the rhetoric here? I mean, it's a really good question because on the, on the one hand, politics is about concentrating minds and initiating action, and so lots of talk about the need to do things immediately, emergency, crisis, and so forth can be really helpful. Um, but when you're talking about something like this, which is not a one-off action to avert something, but an ongoing and systemic transformation, the crisis language can be sometimes a little bit inapt. Mm -hmm. And I worry when I hear um, Greta Thunberg say to adults like me that we should panic. I understand why she says that and why she wants to stress that urgency. Panic's not a good condition to be in if you want to have well-thought-out actions and responses. Uh, and I think too much talk about crisis can make people feel, what's the point? What can we do? So it's very difficult. I don't know how you bridge the gap between saying, on the one hand, things must be done, there's an emergency and a necessity to act now, and having a sense of the long-term and more considered actions that need to be done. What do you think, Corinne? Well, look, uh, I'm a scientist. It is urgent to address climate change, but I want to see what's the plan. I've heard a lot climate emergency, and I'm missing really what's the follow-up action. Maybe we will mm -hmm. see this in New York this week. Maybe we'll see this in the next 15 months. But everybody who has called climate change an emergency should be coming up with plans and real actions and investment and something to do next. And this is really what is missing now. Uh, one of the uh, things to remember, and that's particularly important for the youth here, is that it's going to take us quite a while to address this issue. So it's not going to be something that next year will be sorted, but it will be sorted slowly, but I hope at a very fast pace for the decades to come. So you have to keep this perspective so you keep the momentum and the oomph in your, in, in your, in your action. Pierre, what do you think about the language that we use and, and what's helpful and what's not helpful? I mean, are we? is there a danger that by saying emergency, crisis, apocalypse, that we actually turn off those people who are a bit sceptical or who just don't really want to change? They don't want to give up beef. They don't want to stop flying places. Yeah, I think it, I still think it's useful to call it a crisis because in many ways it is, except that it's a slow-burning crisis. It's not like a, mm. a, a moment. And climate, as Corinne said, climate change will be with us for the next decade. Even if we, are, we start acting very dramatically in the next couple of years, it's still going to be there. The carbon is there uh, in the atmosphere. And even sucking it out would be difficult anyway. 
so I think I, I, in, in that sense it's useful, but I would like to co come back to the discussion before about creating a positive vision. I think if you stay, you remain at the level of calling it a crisis, you scare a bit people, you focus the mind, but then you don't create any perspective out of it. When you start mm -hmm. talking about a positive vision, such as, for instance, like discussions right now about the Green New Deal, which is about... Uh, the, the climate crisis, but which is also about creating good jobs, which is also about creating good housing for everyone. When you create a, a vision that is attractive like that, I think you have more. It has more potential to carry people than just remaining at the uh, observation that there is a crisis and we need to do something, and, and, and it's frightening. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there are so many positive uh, uh, side effects of addressing climate change, so to speak. Think about mobility. So what are, how are we going to transport ourselves? We need to go to work. We need to go to school. Uh, uh, what's the plan here? Well, the plan is, if you can, you can uh, walk, you can uh, take your bicycle, you can use public transport, and the city's pollution will be a lot lower. If you can't, uh, you can share a car ride. You can also invest in, in, in electric mobility, electric cars, and there there's a big role for financing this by the government. And there's all kinds of side effect, particularly for air quality and for health of the people in doing this. And this is the kind of vision that we actually need from government, from big leaders uh, in urban environment, for example, to say, well, I'm going to live in a better world and it's going to address climate change, but it's going to also do all these other things. But yeah. we've been paralyzed by Brexit in this country. So, so I wonder if we're ever going to get to a point where this is politically a mainstream discussion or actually it, it still remains on the fringe what do you think? Well, that's a complicated question. Brexit's going to paralyse us for <laughs> some time yet, I would think. But in a way, I think there was a connection between the Brexit paralysing and the paralysis and this upsurge of interest in the climate issue in the UK because this kind of freezing moment of politics, the way it shows it to be in, in a crisis in different kinds of ways, to use that language again, actually creates in people the sense of, well, how, we've got to get over all of this and opens people possibly to thinking differently about how constitutions, parties, politics should change and therefore also perhaps how social organisation, social order could change. So there is a way to connect the kind of more general political, cultural crisis of British politics to these kinds of issues. And then, then I think it does come down to, to climate activists, politicians, scientists, researchers finding mm -hmm. the way to articulate that, that vision, which is just, isn't just about the technologies that might be replace uh, carbon polluting technologies, but also more broadly how life might work and giving people that sense of the positive benefits. I mean, that's part of the political um, resistance to it comes from the fact there are people who will experience losses from adapting or changing our technologies to address climate change so how can we explain to those people how they're going to get over those losses part of the problem certainly in France the yellow vests and so forth and also here is people in rural areas who need cars and need petrol and want transport for work and life can't see how they're going to do well out of taxes that increase costs in petrol so there are ways to respond as you've just done Corinna to say look actually we can address that and you have better systems of transport that get you where you want to need that improve your conditions. And once we can get there, then I think we begin to see a tipping point. Yeah, I mean, one of the sectors where there are big opportunities with Brexit, also without Brexit, is, is land use. So is how uh, we, uh, we use our land in a way that considers not only the production of food, but all the other services that the land gives us. Uh, biodiversity, clean water, um, wood, 
uh, and there are uh, opportunities as we think about the future of agriculture to reward uh, landowners for these broader services that must happen so that the soils become richer and that we have an environment that also includes uh, carbon stocks, that also has uh, um, manage of natural environments in it. So this is one area that is really big uh, in terms of thinking about policies in a much, much broader scale. Of course, when we implement policies, they, there's always movements. There's going to be winners and people who will be uh, moved more than others. And the way we do this in a recognizable, fair way, so a way that is fair and perceived to be fair, is extremely important. No, I, I wouldn't emphasize that. You can see that at, at, like the importance of, of justice for dealing with climate change is, is crucial. For instance, uh, you were mentioning the yellow vests, mm -hmm. and it's true that it was uh, the raise of a, of a tax on fuel that started the movement. But the dominant voice in the movement was, it's not that we don't want uh, to address climate change, it's that this is unjust, this is mm -hmm. going to hit people who mm -hmm. are already struggling uh, so, of course, there may be some climate deniers in, among the yellow vests, but the dominant voice was this. So the question of justice was central for these people. And recent, you had a, a recent march that turned like a bit chaotic uh, over the weekend where they were trying to converge the yellow vests with the climate protesters to say, look, we are not against addressing climate change. It's about justice. And this question of justice, you find it. Uh, uh, you find it at all levels. In the EU now there are discussions of how can we convince Polish people, because Poland relies a lot on coal, coal is important for uh, electricity production in, in, in Poland, but also symbolically and so on, it creates jobs. How can we make sure that EU funds are used to help Poland adapt to moving out of coal? And at the global level, you also have this issue. There is a, a green climate fund to try uh, to redistribute resources, help developing countries uh, uh, adapt and, and mitigate climate change. Uh, of course, the problem is often the resources and the commitments are not always there or not so up is to it, scale. I'm sorry, getting a sense, is it about, I'm trying to, sometimes the issue presents itself as a sort of rolling back of kind of what seemed like progress, you know, uh, new technologies, transport systems and so forth. So sometimes the climate issue, can, I think, can come across as we're going to get rid of all that stuff and go back to where we were. And that's where I think people feel is that a good thing? Wasn't it kind of awful? I mean, some people like that for, yeah. <laughs> for good and bad reasons. Others, I think, feel worried about that. So it's, is, is it a case of trying to say, actually, this is a move forward mm. uh -huh. in terms of a new kind of you know, industrial, agricultural revolution uh, and, new, yeah. and doing new things in ways that are better, more effective, more efficient and giving some people that sense of moving forward with, with a, a kind of reasoned collective plan? But where it's clear also what the, the the benefits are clear to people, but also there is, I think, an open recognition of the costs. I think that's an important part of it. Is there are a lot of people losing a lot of things all the time at the moment, and, and they feel that their loss is not being recognised, and climate change can sometimes seem like something that's going to... Or climate change policy can seem like something that's going to impose losses, and people see that, again, as more stuff being taken from us, more kind of harm. So if we can find that way of articulating it as a forward-looking transformation and recognising that where there are that causes difficulties and how those are being taken account uh, of. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. So I, I, if it can be viewed in terms of moving forward, I mean, this is fantastic. Anyway, this is where people want to go is forward mm -hmm. and not back. Yeah, yeah. And if I come back to this urban environment, I mean, what's wrong with having 
uh, air, good air quality and less noise in urban environment? What's wrong with eating well and doing lots of mm -hmm. exercise? I mean, this is all a, a part of moving forward. Similarly, uh, by renovating the building stock, we could be more comfortable in winter. We could have uh, houses that are fit for purpose in a, in a warming environment. So it really, we have to see this in terms of moving towards sustainability that helps us uh, achieve also personal comfort. So could I ask, can I ask my question now? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask a bit more technical question, and this is out, out of my area of knowledge, which is about carbon recapture. Mm -hmm. So that, the sense I get when I listen to people debating these issues is that there are some on the kind of climate, uh, climate change uh, policy side who think the emphasis primarily is on reducing emissions and scaling back transport planes and so forth and then others who don't object to that but are also saying there have to be other new technologies to withdraw capture um, capture carbon from the environment store it and so forth and it, it, am i right that is a debate that goes yeah, on it, it, yeah but it's a, it's a non-debate because there's three ways to tackle climate change we can use less energy for example, if you have a small car versus a big car, mm -hmm. you use less energy. Uh, we can be more uh, uh, efficient and we can produce uh, energy in a different way. And all of these have to be implemented. In fact, to stop the planet from warning, warming further, the emissions of uh, greenhouse gas, they have to be brought down to zero, completely zero. So... You can do this for a number of things, mobility, uh, heating, uh, some industry, but there are some things you can't bring down to zero. Uh, aviation, you can't bring down to zero. At least it's very difficult to foresee that we could bring it down to zero. And agriculture, you, can bring mm -hmm. down, you cannot bring down to zero because at the end of the day, you can eat better and that emits less carbon. You still have to eat. So there's a whole... A uh, set of uh, technologies that are being developed to capture carbon out of the atmosphere and store it on the ground to offset these emissions that you can't bring down to zero. But this is called negative emissions, mm -hmm. but the potential for this is not infinite. Okay. We could not continue the way we do now and say, well, let's just capture carbon out of the atmosphere and store it on the ground. You can't. It takes energy, uh, it takes uh, effort, uh, it takes storage capacity, then you have to monitor it once you put it on the ground so that there's no leakages and so on. So you can develop this for the last bit that you can't do anything about, but it's this last bit, it's not the whole basket. So technology is not going to save us. Technology is already here. We have loads of technology. Let's use it. <laughs> OK, there's some other positive signs. Um, you were telling me about some research you've done about 18 countries where emissions are decreasing. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we've looked at, in a study published this year. We've looked at the 18 sort of best countries in terms of what do they do for their emissions. We looked at uh, the 18 countries where emissions decrease and it's not because of leakage or something, it's for because of real efforts. And the question we ask is, is there something across these countries that um, sort of could guide action? What do these countries do that work? And they do three things. Once, the first one is use less energy. So these were the countries where the energy demand is in fact decreasing. Not very much, but actually decreasing. So that means becoming more efficient, uh, insulating our houses and things like that. 
The second one is deploying renewable energy. So we've become really good at deploying renewable energy, wind in this country, but solar power, uh, biomass, uh, hydroelectric power. So these renewable energy, the more you invest in them, the more price is cut and the more there's deployment. So this was also something that across country really worked. And then the last thing, which uh, was a correlation, so it's not a cause and effect, but the countries that had the biggest emissions were also the countries that had the more energy and climate policies in place. And that was to us a great news, although we couldn't actually be absolutely sure of the cause, that the more effort countries did to tackle energy and climate change in a renewable way, the more it worked. The things that work less across countries were, for example, uh, the shift from coal to gas was just a few countries. For example, uh, the fossil industry becoming cleaner, that was not something that actually appeared in this group of countries. So using less energy, renewable energy, and putting po policies in place. So were these countries all over the, the world or in particular regions? It, it, it was uh, mainly European countries, a lot of Scandinavian countries. Right. The UK is part of this, and the United States. So does it make a difference how big yeah. the country is or uh, it's, it's sort of it's it's na it's given natural resources and you know does it does it ma that make a difference or? I, I, I'm sure that made a difference I mean we didn't go at the country right. uh, per country level we said well just across country take all the countries with uh, same same weight of one big country small country and what do they succeed in doing at the national level but it showed that it did succeed it so did that's succeed, good. that's right. And it showed also, we also looked at the countries who were not in this group of countries. And one of the things that came out is that countries can be very good at deploying renewable energy if they don't have action in place to extra, to remove fossil energy, then it didn't have any effect okay. on CO2. So it's not just renewable energy. You have to have a whole set of action to uh, get out of fossil fuels. To come back to the case of Germany, the sad thing with Germany is that Germany is deploying renewable energy, has been deploying renewable energy quite fast, and but has been decommissioning nuclear energy uh, faster than it's decommissioning coal. So that's why it kind of like it offsets, and what? Germany is struggling to actually reach its, its own targets. Uh, what, what's behind that uh, in terms of decommissioning nuclear? Because there's, there's a long tradition of anti-nuclear protests in Germany dating back from the late 60s, 70s, I think, and that is still very vibrant. So it was, it was a post-Fukushima uh, decision, uh, but there was a previous decision to decommission nuclear that had been reversed by the government before. Uh, but it's kind of like it's rooted in this anti-nuclear tradition in <coughs> Germany. <coughs> Just to clarify, <laughs> does nuclear have a place in climate change reduction or...? Not. So nuclear energy is actually low carbon. So it is helpful to have nuclear energy to decarbonize. Uh, you can uh, go uh, other route, different routes. So renewable energy is uh, coming down very quickly. But as part of an energy mix, uh, nuclear is making your problem easier to solve, mm -hmm. in fact. So if you're trying to get out of nuclear energy at the same time as uh, tackling climate change, you need a very, very ambitious plan for renewable energy to make up for that. It is possible, but it has to be more ambitious. Okay. Okay. But I would I would say for for nuclear energy it might be might not be the priority to decommission nuclear because it's less much less carbon intensive than coal or, or oil. 
But nuclear energy doesn't look like it's the energy of the future, given that the cost of renewable energies has been going dramatically down uh, in, in recent years. Uh, whereas the cost of nuclear, if anything, are, are almost increasing because of the cost of decommissioning the plants when they, they are too old. And it's a problem that the country I come from, France, is, is facing right now, having a, the largest, in, in proportion, the largest uh, nuclear fleet and being at the point where this, these plants will have to be decommissioned and it's going to cost a lot of money and the costs are, are going up. So I said at the beginning um, that global leaders are getting ready to meet at the United Nations in New York. They'll be announcing their plans later to reduce CO2 emissions over the next decade in the hope of limiting (coughs) climate change. Um, How will we know if what we hear out of New York is good enough? Well, I mean, first, there should be no surprises in New York. So countries have been preparing for a long time to come and they the most ambitious countries have a three-minute speech and they will come and say what their plan is. I mean, the UK has declared this net zero uh, emissions and that's what it will come and say and then say how it does that and sim- similar likewise for France. Uh, then then uh, if the countries come and give more ambitious uh, 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 commitments than they have said in the past few weeks, then great. And there is a, a, ca- a climate action tracker who then translates all these ambitions to uh, uh, temperature goals. At the moment, there is a gap between in the Paris Agreement between uh, what countries would like uh, the world to do, which is tackle climate change, to limit climate change well below two degrees and pursue effort to one and a half degrees, and the sum of what they have come up to do in terms of pledges. And there is a, a, the climate action tracker, which sums up the pledges. And the goal will be by the end of 2020, as part of the climate agreement, Paris agreement, that these pledges take us closer to the temperature objective. There are some countries who are not presenting, notably. There, there are, there are uh, countries that are, will not be presenting today, uh, the United States, for example, uh, because they have uh, said that they were pulling out of the Paris uh, climate agreement and therefore uh, they are not in the ambitious group of 60 people, uh, 60 countries who will present today. Uh, Pierre, what are you hoping will come out of this? Um, I'm not hoping for so much new. There will be a lot of big talks, announcements of targets that have often already been announced. And it's always all good and well to say, oh, net zero uh, targets. But the question is always how to achieve it. And often when countries set uh, net zero targets, it's to, for to. Uh, for 2050 or something, it's far away, and, and often the, the actions, the actual actions on the ground at the moment are really not matching these ambitions. So I'm not expecting that much, uh, especially also because uh, the US will not be present. There is not like a geopolitical shift uh, at the international level for uh, at the moment. So I don't see much coming that would be new from the summit. And the, U- the US, presumably the US's policy on, on Paris is a, is a big sticking point. That creates a big problem? It, it, it is a big problem. Uh, the US is a big, uh, makes a big leverage, leverage uh, internationally. So what we'll see today, what is expected today, is that countries will move in to, uh, uh, to take the place, the leadership place that the US has 
uh, played in the Paris Agreement in 2015. So we're expecting that China and India in particular would, will come up with quite important uh, pledges today, uh, given their uh, national circumstances. But what we have to see is that the pledges today, they are part of a process. So the Paris Agreement per se is not legally binding internationally because we don't have an international police. The UN has its rules, but it's, it's quite loose. But it's part of, of a process. Countries come up and they make these international pledges. Then they go back to their countries and then they put these pledges in motion, either in law or financing or uh, some activities. And these, uh, there's going to be a dynamic being established that starts today, but that will last a bit over a year for these pledges to turn into reality. And this dynamic will be super interesting in the next 15 months. Okay, so, uh, and if we want to understand that, we can look on the Climate Action Tracker website. Yes, That's the place to look. All right, thank you. That's all for now. Thank you so much um, to our guests for coming in, uh, Professor Corinne Lequiri and uh, Pierre Boucon. Thank you to the BBC, Sky, Reuters, ITV and The Guardian and Channel 4 for our news clips. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do tell a friend either on social media or in real life and check out our website, ueapolitics.org. We'll be back soon with more, but that's all for now. Thank you for listening.